One Week Season. OWS family, what is going on? Hilo here for week two, joined here shortly by Xander Baron. You know the drill by now. We're going to start this off with our primary decision points, and then we'll jump into the slate from a macro perspective overall. Of note, this week, after we are after Xander Baron and I are done chatting it up, we're going to bring in Sonic as well, who's going to um, answer a couple of questions that came in uh, through chat this week as well. Without further ado, Mr. Zandemir, how are we doing this week? Oh, man, I am ready. I'm excited for the slate. I think this is a super interesting slate. Every slate's interesting. Um, But I think the slates where I feel like I have things pretty figured out are especially interesting. And I feel like I've got a good take on this one. Yeah, that could go one of two ways, right? Sure, right. But it's like I'd rather be I mean, I could try, I could think I have it all figured out and it gets horribly wrong, which you know honestly happens more often than not in like large tournament play. Um, but I'd rather I guess I'd rather play and lose feeling like I'm doing feeling like I'm playing the way that I'm good at playing and where I where I'm entering with a high degree of confidence than just sort of like blind, like feeling like I don't have a good handle on things uh, and just kind of blindly picking players and rosters or like I'm, you know, or, or feeling like what I think is going to happen on the slate in terms of like what the field is going to do and then finding out that's wrong, right? Like I'd rather lose due to variance than lose due to me making the wrong decisions, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And that's something that, I mean, you and I specifically have talked about a lot this off season is playing to your strengths. And if you find what that is hammering that edge. so. Um, I'm, I'm seeing the slate similar, uh, I guess in a similar light as you are. Um, I narrowed my player pool at about Friday, early morning. So about 24 hours ago. Um, and I've been spending the last over a day questioning everything. And that was something that I put in the edge, uh, right up this week as well is really the field is going to assume that they know so much more than, than they actually know this week. So um, I've spent the better part of 24 hours really dissecting everything and and trying to see if not necessarily trying to see if there's anything I missed, but questioning um, my reasoning and rationale for being able to condense my player pool uh, so early. Uh, so that's something we'll talk about as well. Yeah, and that's something I think is interesting about week two, right? Like I say this a lot that week two is actually the week when we know the least, right? Not week one. Week one, we know very little. But then in week two, we have a whole bunch of stuff that we're going to overreact to or or a lot of people are going to be tempted to overreact to. Right. And some of that's around outcomes. Um, You know, Najee Harris, apparently the field's getting a little smarter because despite him posting a dud game, he's projecting a really high ownership because the field saw his underlying usage is really strong. Um, But we also, I think, overreact to roles. Um, you know, we, we say like, oh, this guy has a really strong role because he saw, you know, he played 80 percent of snaps and saw and saw this many targets or whatever. and in some cases, that's opponent-specific game planning, or in some cases, it's due to you know another guy was injured, um, and and they they brought him along slowly. And in some cases, it's due to you know guys riding the hot hand. And so I think that you know we can look at outcomes. Um, 
And the field's generally getting pretty good at disregarding, you know, week one outcomes and looking at the underlying usage. But we we still don't know as much as we think we do because the underlying usage is uh, is up for up for debate and up for change, right? Like I think Cooper Cup is a great example of that. You know, he smashed in week one, saw really good usage. Robert Woods didn't play as many snaps as he normally does, um, but does that mean that's going to continue? Like I don't know. I, I think the field is overweighting that possibility. Yes, in a similar vein, um, on the other side of that discussion point is somebody like Austin Eckler, who saw zero targets, and um, I think people are a little quick to assume that that might be the new norm. I, you know, like JM talked about in his DFS interpretation, um, and like I alluded to in the edge write up of that game. You know, we have one one game of data points uh, for for players coming into week two. So people are going to overreact to that. People are going to assume that that is a trend, which is a a dangerous thing to do uh, or to be doing this early. So definitely interesting discussion points and stuff that we are going to jump into. And I can't wait for this one. This one's going to be fun. Before we do that, I'm going to ask you, X, what... Do you see as the primary decision point for this week? <laughs> oh, you set me up. Um, <clears throat> it's I think in terms of construction. Uh, I mean, okay, there's a couple ways to approach that question, right? The the big game that's going to attract a ton of ownership is uh, the Chargers and the Cowboys, obviously. And so a big decision point is what to do with that game. Um, but I think I know where you're really going with this, which is from a roster construction standpoint and thinking about what the field's likely to do, uh, it's tight end, right? It's what to do with your tight end position. So like last week, what to do with tight end was play Kyle Pitts. Um, this week, we have three tight ends who are projected to combine for over 50% ownership. Um, and they're all priced really closely together. They're all priced within $300 of each other. And that's Tyler Higby, Noah Fant, and Jared Cook. And so we know that 50% of the field is going to be building rosters using between 3,900 and 4,200 at their tight end position. And so that's, I think that's the clearest bit of objective knowledge that we have about what the field's going to be doing in terms of construction, not just in terms of players. Um, when you know 50% of the field spending 4k at tight end, that lets you kind of piece together what they're going to be doing with the rest of their rosters with a pretty high degree of confidence. And there you have it. That is the funnel for the, chalk build this week is the tight end position which is counterintuitive to most if you think about it it's typically you know 80 90 percent of the time it's either going to be running backs or wide receivers that are going to funnel towards that chalk build but this week it just so happened that the three highest expected ownerships at the tight end position are all within 300 dollars in salary of each other uh, which creates this interesting dynamic where we know where half of the field we know basically how half of the field's rosters are going to be built and they're going to be starting, or that funnel is going to be starting at the tight end position. Obviously, um, the first your first answer to that question, love that as well, um, with the obvious funnel of ownership towards the highest game total, the highest expected um, game environment for potential fantasy points in Dallas and the Chargers. Um, we'll discuss a little bit about that as well. But big picture, the macro of this slate is the funnel really through uh, roster construction is through the tight end position, which is somewhat unique. And we'll, we'll talk about that here shortly as well. I love it, dude. You ready to jump in? I think we should start at the tight end position this week because the funnel for the chalk build is through that position. What do you think? 
Yeah, agreed. And also just because it's such normally like an afterthought position, right? Like you'll build the rest of the roster and then it's like, what tight end can I fit? What defense can I fit? So I think it makes sense to start here. Yeah, I love it. So we, we mentioned the, the expected high ownership on all of Noah Fant, uh, Tyler Higby, and uh, Jared Cook. Likely, uh, we don't know the, the, you know how the ownership is going to shake out between those guys, but from a macro perspective of across the industry, we know those three guys are all going to carry heavy ownership. And it's, it's liable in single entry, three max contest. It could be com- uh, combin- or a combined ownership exceeding even 60% on just those three guys. So uh, when we start talking about big field stuff, there's a little bit more game theory that the field utilizes. And so we're likely to see that ownership settle in the 50 to 55% range. But anyway, with those three guys expected to carry so much ownership, what are you thinking would be like the easiest way to generate leverage uh, on a slate like this? Uh, To me, I think there's one... From a strategy perspective, I think it's uh, it's there aren't a lot of punt tight ends I love. Um, so I think from a strategy perspective, it's paying up. Uh, you've got you know Darren Waller, you've got George Kittle, who've both shown immense ceilings in their career, and they're both in difficult matchups, but they're both projected at you know minuscule ownership. And I'm seeing I, I'm aggregating uh, ownership from a few different projection sources uh, to average it together, and I'm seeing about like under four percent for Waller. And we know where the targets are going if Las Vegas falls behind, right? He got 19 targets, I think, in week one. Is that right? Um, you know, Kittle's, yeah. vo- Kittle's volume is uh, less predictable, but he's got a huge ceiling. Um, but my favorite, my favorite individual play at tight end is actually Kyle Pitts, who's projecting for about six percent ownership right now. I don't remember where Pitts's ownership settled at the end of last week, but I think it was it was over twenty. So you're getting Pitts at about you know twenty five percent of the ownership that he had in week one. Um, the matchup is not as intimidating as I think people might fear. Right, Philly is actually pretty good at covering tight ends historically. Tampa has a tremendous pass rush, pass rush, but has not been as effective at covering tight ends. You know, he's a little more expensive than he was. But like, if Pitts was a really good play in week one, um, how you know? Yes, he's a little more expensive, but how is he not? Uh, an awesome play here in week two at one quarter of the ownership. Um, you know, what What would, and the question I try to ask myself is, what would Pitts' ownership be if he'd put up 20 points in week one? I'm pretty sure it'd be a lot higher than 6%. And so that kind of leads me to um, evaluate like, that kind of leads me to sort of check my own thinking about like, well, he failed in week one. Maybe Matt Ryan's not good anymore, blah, blah, blah. That sort of sort of causes me to evaluate like, no, like I've got to throw that stuff out. That was just it was a it was one week. It was variance. He played a lot of snaps. He saw eight targets, which I think was tied for the team lead with Ridley, if I remember right. Um, so he saw lots of usage. The matchup is is solid. It's one of the highest total games in the slate. Like, why would I not want to go back to the well on this guy at six percent now? I absolutely love it. and. In kind of along the same lines of the question that you pose yourself, I also like to ask myself, what has changed? What changed from week one to week two that, you know, outside of his disappointing performance in week one, what changed? The only thing that changed is we were basically given our confirmation that he's going to be utilized, not like a traditional tight end. So he played 42% slot snap rate. He had, you know, tied for the lead or for the team lead on targets. Um, he was involved. He was moved around the formation. He was dialed up slants. Everything with, that we thought or that we were hoping Kyle Pitts to turn into, he showed us in week one, yet his ownership is falling off a cliff. I actually, before we jumped on this pod, 
um, a person that will remain unnamed on Twitter posted the question, who do you think is going to break out in week one if you can only pick one player? I responded, and I, I was the, probably the one or two out of 50-plus responses that he got to say Kyle Pitts. And the, his response to me was basically everything that you were saying, like, oh, you know, I, 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 I'm going to wait for a better spot for Pitts or this and that and this and that. And I, I didn't even want to respond because that edge is like something that is, is massive for this week. So I agree, like my first inkling or my first, you know, viewing this slate from a macro perspective, my first hunch is to pay up at tight end. We talk about, I wrote Darren Waller up in the end around. I, I'm not going to belabor that, but Kyle Pitts, oh my God, you guys, like Kyle Pitts is the, one of the greatest leverage pieces on this slate. And the best part about Kyle Pitts too, is you don't have to worry about a correlated bring back because he's playing in a game as a massive road underdog and his opponent is a spread offense. So there is a very valid scenario where Kyle Pitts is one, the only pass catcher or the only player of fantasy utility on his own team. And that if he succeeds, it does not necessarily mean that a bring back is required. So he's one of my top one offs on the slate is Kyle Pitts. And the amount of leverage that you generate from a roster construction standpoint is so massive by paying up for one of these three guys up top. Mm -hmm. Absolutely love it. Yeah. I just want to note too, like we see a lot, you know, we, we often see chalk guys fail and then next week the chalk guy hits and everyone's like, Oh, flop lag. Oh, of course. Um, of course that happened. Oh, I played him last week. This is so dumb, you know? And, and, and the thing there is like the, pl the guy was a good play the week before when he was chalk variants cause him to fail because variance is a thing. And that doesn't, you know, he's, he's the same play the next week, right? Like usage role on the team. Those are the most important factors, you know, map trip matters too. But I think that like the guy's role on the team and how the team uses a guy, like that's the most important thing. And that's not going to change week to week for most players, right? To your point, we got confirmation that, uh, Atlanta was going to use Kyle Pitts heavily. Um, you know, that was my only concern with Kyle Pitts was, are, are they going to bring him along slowly in week one? They clearly showed that's not the case. That was my only worry. Obviously, I know he still could have a bad game. Anyone can have a bad game. But the one concern I had in week one was put to bed. So I'm I'm I am highly confident and I'm happy to go all in. And, you know, if he has a if he has another bad game, then then so be it. I can't control that. Right. I can't control outcomes. All I can control is making good decisions and I'll play him again in week three. Exactly. Same. I'm exactly matching those that line of thinking. You also mentioned an interesting thing about matchups that really stuck out to me. And one thing that I want to. I guess highlight here before we move on is what what is matchups in the you know at the beginning of the year weeks one through four we don't know like we don't have enough data points to be able to say like oh we expect this team to be a top defense against yada 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 like honestly it's we just don't know and the field thinks they know so like particularly with Kyle Pitts it's a perceived touch tough matchup right with Tampa Bay well one like they are probably the team that has changed the least coming from 2020 to 2021. However, comma, Sean Murphy bunting is expected to be out, which is their starting slot corner. And might I add the weakest point of their defense. So they are a natural inside funnel defense, uh, typically towards 
the slot wide receivers, which we know for on paper, at least is Russell Gage for the Falcons. However, again, jumping back to Pitts's usage in week one, he played 41, 42% of his slot snaps for, or of his snaps from the slot. So there's a lot of, there's a lot, I guess, of misconceptions regarding that game overall and Kyle Pitts in particular that I think is a really, really sharp, uh, something that's really, really sharp to capitalize on this week. I think we beat that one dead. Yeah, okay. We, I was gonna say I can say more, but we can move now. We can move on. I, was gonna, I just want to say, like, tough a tough matchup doesn't mean a player can't have a good game. It doesn't lower their ceiling. It might lower their odds of hitting their ceiling. But one, I don't think this matchup is actually as tough as people as, as maybe people seem to think. You know, like team like the Bucks are a good defense overall. But one of the reasons they're really good is they're just elite against the run, and they have a good pass rush. And that that what that leads to is it leads to more passing volume against them, part because they have really good offense. They score a lot. So teams are playing catch up and part because you can't run on them. And so teams are passing more. And so like <clears throat> volume can trump matchup. And, you know, you're, you're likely to get more pass volume in a game against the Bucks. So even if each individual dropback is less efficient than it would be against, like, I don't know, the Texans, you're going to get more volume and you can make it up that way. So a guy's projection doesn't really change for me that much in my mind against, say, the Bucks, because the volume, you know, you you might get, uh, you know, 10 percent less efficiency, but 10 or 20 percent more volume and it comes out in the wash. Yeah, I think the the most salient point that you just brought up, I mean, all of it was gold, but um, I something I want to reiterate for the listeners is matchup or basically volume trumps matchup in most cases, uh, particularly when we're talking about early season. So um, all, all of that absolute gold. I love it. Um, let us, let's go to a running back next because hey, that can is I ask you a quick next. question. I have, I have a question yeah, for you. We, I'm just curious of your thoughts here. We talked about the top three on tight ends. Uh, number four on the tight end projected ownership list is one Adam Troutman uh, on the saints who is somewhat infamous <laughs> yep. for a chalk week last year when I think he was something like 20% owned or higher uh, and put up a zero because he's really, he's, he's a blocker. Um, but he's, he's coming off of one week with six targets in which he caught three of them egregiously dropped two more. Uh, and now he's the fourth highest owned tight end on the slate, which I, and I feel like I'm missing something like, am I taking crazy? pills that people are actually going to play Adam Troutman or has his role really changed? I'm just curious for your thoughts. And is he, are you think they're going to legitimately use him as a receiver this year? Possibly later on in the, in the season. I don't see it right now. This is an interesting case because it's so easy to say like uh, to write him off because of his previous performance. But this is a player who was basically drafted because, you know, all the narratives surrounding the, you know, tight ends coming out of college. Oh, he played basketball. Oh, you know, they had Jimmy Graham who played basketball. He's going to, he's going to crush. Well, like these are, these are human beings and these are different players and they, they play different style. And he is more sought after in this stage of his career for his blocking abilities and acumen. And that is largely, I guess, a dig or a, an, unnatural fit i'll call it for the starting quarterback in Jameis winston so i was a little bit more excited about trotman you know talking best ball and season long and stuff like that um when there was that chance um that that uh Jameis was not going to be the starter and their offense was going to look a lot different because i i felt that they would feature a, an athletic tight end more in that case 
Um, that's kind of my read on that situation. I want no part of Trotman uh, this week. The if if I'm not paying up at tight end, I'm gonna try and pay like all the way down and like like scratching the bottom of the barrel. And one guy in particular that I landed on that I'll probably throw in the handful of rosters because again I'm taking a, a little bit more of an MME approach this week, similar to last week, just because I feel like the early season edge is a little bit greater. Uh, so I'm really taking a stand. Um, and that guy is Michael, Michael Pruitt. And that is, that comes with an asterisk only if Anthony Ferkser is not. If Ferks is, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So and if, that's like, okay. No, go, you go. I I'll finish that up after you. I was going to say, I like the sort of game environment exposure, right? Like, I was going to say a couple guys on my list, and I'm probably doing 150 uh, this week. Um, And so a couple other guys I have on my list, I have Dalton Schultz and Blake Jarwin, who are, you know, similarly very, very cheap. And the thing with like these timeshare guys is in a projection system, they're going to be projected, you know, 50-50 split. And so it makes neither their projection look very good. And so no one plays them um, because they don't look like great value. But in reality, it's pretty rare for the actual output in a game to be split 50-50, right? Like last week, yeah. uh, Schultz got six targets, Darwin got three. They each caught all of them. They're both actually fairly talented receivers, which is surprising for Schultz because he was more of a blocker. But then when Darwin was hurt last year, he filled in pretty admirably. Um, and so I'm always looking for ways to get like low-owned exposure to an amazing game environment. And so I love yeah. Pruitt if Firxer's out. And I think that like Schultz and Darwin are ways to build, or if you want to build around that Chargers-Cowboys game, like I wouldn't play them as a one-off, but if you want to build around that Chargers Cowboys game, but find some ways to get different. Um, you know, those are two interesting ways to do it in my mind. Yeah, I concur hundred percent. We know that my thinking with Michael Pruitt is we know that Tennessee is going to carry elevated 12 personnel <laughs> rates. Um, and if Anthony Ferkser is out, the only other tight ends on the roster would be Jeff Swaim, a likely Tanner Hudson call up for game day. And then Michael Pruitt. And, um, Jeff Swaim is known as more of a blocker. So if they're in 12 mm-hmm. personnel at elevated rates, it's likely that Pruitt would be the one running those routes. Um, so again, cheap exposure to a, a plus game environment like you were talking about earlier. Yeah, I love it. And similarly to last week, right? Like I'm kind of off the guys that are priced right around like the, the chalk tier, just because I feel like it, it doesn't get you as much differentiation. You're kind of making a one for one pivot versus like the guys, you know, and, and like, Last week I said I, I said it, the edge in DFS is still there because people are going to play these other tight ends instead of Pitts, right? And obviously Pitts failed, and so like Hawkinson outscored him, and a bunch of guys outscored Pitts. But that's not really the point, right? The point isn't who outscores someone in the in the results column. The point is if you're trying to make a one v one swap, uh, that's not the best way to get leverage. The best way to get leverage is doing something that changes your overall construction and preferably does so in a way that when you're, if your guy hits, it means someone else that the field is using heavily fails. And so I just didn't think any of those tight ends, you know, they, they did the one throw on pivot off pits, but they didn't change your construction by using him. And so similarly, I'm not super interested in like Dallas Goddard, Cole Komet, Rob Gronkowski, any of them could have a good game, but if they do, I'll just beat the L there. <laughs> yep. I concur. And that's why I said I'm, I'm much more, uh, I guess, drawn to paying up or paying all the way down this week at tight end. Uh, I'm that, with you. Again, that fundamentally changes your roster construction as a whole. All right, man. I think we crushed tight end. What do you think? 
Yeah, that was probably too much time on tight end, honestly. <laughs> but uh, but it is the decision point of the slate. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, that's again why we wanted to weigh a little bit heavier there. The the second natural funnel for rosters, uh, I guess, in a, from a construction standpoint this week is going to be the running back position. Um, I talked early week, JM talked early week about, you know, Najee Harris and Chris Carson. Uh, I even called Chris Carson my early week favorite play of the slate. Um, this is when I had not looked at ownership. Ownership wasn't accurate at that time. And I expected these two to be lower owned on the slate, you know, come in maybe RB seven, eight, nine, ten, you know, somewhere in that range. Well, now these are the two projected highest owned uh, running backs on the slate and vying for some of the highest owned players overall on the slate. So I, I was faced with an interesting conundrum in that I even went so far as to call these two guys, the top running back plays on paper or in a vacuum on the slate. And then I went on to say, I will likely be under 10% on each of them. Um, and again, that is just comes from a pure game theory leverage roster construction standpoint. So what are you, what are you thinking about the overall, you know, state of the running back position for this week? Yeah. So, God. so this is an interesting lesson in that in some ways the field is getting smarter at identifying good plays. And this is part of the reason why OWS is so focused around strategy and building good rosters, right? Like Najee Harris sucked in week one. He did nothing, right? But the usage was really strong and now he's home against the Raiders and we can expect the usage is going to be equally strong. And so despite putting up, you know, six points or whatever he put up, he's the highest owned running back on the slate. And a couple of years ago, that wouldn't have happened, right? The dud would have killed his ownership. Now, it said the field doesn't always do this, right? Kyle Pitts' ownership plummeted after a dud, right? So um, the field is still learning this, but you, we can see the field sort of evolving. So as far as running back, like I'm generally more willing to uh, to play high-owned running backs because their range of outcomes is narrower because they're relying on more volume. And, you know, they're, they're not relying on like a wide receiver catching a 20 or 30 or 40 yard touchdown. They're relying on, you know, 20 plus touches to generate volume, to generate points steadily over time. And so there's just less variance there. So I'm OK playing those guys. Um, but you just have to be aware that if you play those guys, you want to, you know, intelligently differentiate elsewhere. Um, but that said, I think there's a lot of opportunities at the running back position. Like we we have some guys in this, uh, this slate here going in my. Um, Christian McCaffrey is projected for 10% ownership and he came back in week one uh, and showed Panthers showed they use him just like they used him previously, right? There was some about like our change, how they use him. Is he not going to be a, a 90% of the snaps guy? Well, no, they're going to keep using him. And if DraftKings would load, I'd pull many touches he got but i think it was like um including like eight or nine catches and you know when you can get yeah. the top running back on the slate with the highest ceiling attention ownership that seems pretty okay to me uh, uh, Mick uh oh running backs are coming in at no ownership and it's part just because of the construction of the slate right like there aren't any glaring value 
split of those like 4K 10s. And so this is much like last week was a very Star Scrubs build, right? Cheap wide receiver lore. And so you plug in studs around them. This week is a more like team mid-range build. And so in my mind, the clearest way to differentiate at running back is play the studs. And most of the rosters that play on like Kamara or Cook or Christian McCaffrey or hell, even Derrick Henry is coming in at 3% owned and we know has game-breaking upside um, if he, you know, if in Tennessee is going to try to try to run him a lot uh, as long as they don't fall way behind. Um, you know, if instead of just playing one of those guys, most rosters that use a stud running back will have one. It, I think very, very few rosters are going to pair like Kamara and Cook or Cook and CMC or CMC and Kamara, where normally we say you don't play two running backs in the same game against each other. But these guys have elite pass game roles. Uh, and I think you can absolutely play them together. So that's one way to approach it is pairing um Pairing two stud running backs. I actually made a Justin Herbert roster uh, to show a friend a bit ago uh, that had CMC and Camara. And then it had like Guyton and Jared Cook and CeeDee Lamb and I don't remember who else. Um, yeah. And another way is like double pay down, right? Because like what you're going to see, you're going to see the field do two mid-range or like one mid-range and a stud or or one pay down and one stud. But you can play like uh, Damian Harris and I don't really like Kenyon Drake this week. Always attracting a lot of ownership, but you could do like Harris and Daryl Henderson or Chase Edmonds, or if you want to chase Elijah Mitchell or, you know, Javonta Williams is in the, in the mix there. Naheem Hines, like, uh, if you're willing to take a lot of risk, but for it, no ownership, you could go with Ronald Jones as like a 12 point home favorite or something like that. Um, like there's a lot of cheap running backs who are, va- who are viable this week. They're significantly under projecting the mid range. And so like optimizers are going to hate them. And so people who build their, you know, just build their optimizers are not going to get any exposure to those guys. But like that from a strategy perspective, I think double pay up or double pay down uh, and double pay down, of course, lets you pay up at tight end. Um, that gets you just way off of uh, the standard, you know, that what the standard field roster is going to look like, but while still playing good plays, right? Like that's what we want to do. We don't want to differentiate through playing objectively awful plays. We want to differentiate through just construction, but while still being on strong plays. Yeah. So I'm my thinking or how I'm approaching the slate pretty much aligns with uh, how you broke that down completely. One uh, or a couple of things that, that you said there that sparked something or, or I guess thoughts that I want to cover here, looking at, Let's look at Chris Carson in particular. You know, Chris Carson, you know, in a positive game script, we should expect, you know, 22 to 24 running back opportunities with likely two to four of those being of the pass variety, right? So 20 rushes, three to four targets, something like that in positive game script. And that that really almost doesn't matter you know, how thin their running back room is, you know, they still have guys on the roster. They have Collins, they have DJ Dallas, they have guys that they can rotate in, but the field is going to just assume that, Oh, this is, Oh, hell yeah. We get like Chris Carson workhorse, uh, for week two in a plus, uh, game environment. Like, well, maybe like, that's what that's, that's the perception. Right. And again, like we started this thing off with the field is going to think that they know a whole lot more than they know. So let me pose a question to you and I want the listeners to really think about this. How great is the difference between Chris Carson's expected workload and Damian Harris's expected workload? Think about that real quick. Like, yeah, are if, we memory, expecting... if memory serves, oh, sorry, should we ponder for a minute? 
No, no, go for it. I was going to say, if memory serves, and like, God, DraftKings is not loading, so I need to like go dig up game logs somewhere. Um, but if memory serves, Damian Harris got more touches in week one than Chris Carson. He did. Is that right? He saw 20 rushes and I believe one target, if I remember correctly. He had one catch on one target for like four yards or something. Trying to find him now. Let's see. 23 carries for 100 yards, uh, three yeah. targets, two receptions, uh, and a fumble in the fumble, right? Which, of course... Mm-hmm. You know, is why people are like, oh, God, now he's in the doghouse. Let's okay, see. so he saw 26 running back opportunities in week one, and that's something that he has done already. And that is basically the high end of the expected touch projection for Chris Carson. Yeah, Chris Carson's on so 19. This, yeah, this, this idea just, again, goes back to emphasize the fact that I want to be questioning absolutely everything. And then you look at the ownership gap or delta between those two and is chris carson a 12 times greater play than damien harris would be no not to me when we just broke down his expected range of touches right i mean the matchup is not as good but again this is it's just the overall mindset that i want to highlight here is i want to be questioning everything where the field seems to have such certainty and we look yeah, at even Najee Harris. Him, go ahead. I was going to let me pose you a question. How many times in 2020 do you think Chris Carson saw 20 running back opportunities or more? I think it was three or four. Um, I'm adding up in my head right now. It looks like two. Uh, okay. against, New England, against New England, <laughs> so New England. and he's yeah, he like Seattle, and we don't know if this will carry over, right? But like Seattle, historically has kind of have kind of capped him around the like 18 to 20 or so range and exactly. new england has not historically had that fear with harris and again we don't know like we just don't know what's going to happen right like in 2019 carson had multiple games of just 20 plus carries um so we to to Hilo's point like this is an area where the field is overrating its its knowledge overrating its level of confidence yeah and that's not to say that chris carson is a bad play he is a great play I went as far as calling him my favorite play on the slate early week. He is now one of like my, a, an extremely just polarizing play to me. He's not like, and, and, and I even, I said earlier, like he's still a, one of the top two running back plays on paper in a vacuum uh, on the slate, but I will likely have under 10%. And that just goes again to the state of the slate. He matches the chalk build, which I covered in the end around is, and, and you alluded to earlier, it's going to be, that balanced roster, you know, there's just so many guys that are getting all the buzz that are right in that mid range uh, or mid tier of pricing. Uh, so again, this is just the main thing that I want to highlight here is just, I want to be questioning absolutely everything right now. Let's look at Najee Harris with that same kind of mindset. This is a guy who we know the everybody and their mother, even their grandmothers know that played a hundred percent of the uh, snaps for Pittsburgh. But what did that lead to? That led to six rush attempts and what was it, three or four targets? Like, okay, like that's that's solid. 20 running back opportunities, that's solid. Well, we also have to like, even I went this offseason, I'll back it up a little bit. This offseason, I was comparing to, I was comparing Najee Harris to Le'Veon Bell um, with the expected role that I thought he would have. Well, that's really unfair, honestly, because 
the team composition when Le'Veon Bell was with the Steelers, they had Antonio Brown, they had Juju Smith-Schuster for a little bit of that, and then they had you know a smattering of mediocrity at tight end, and that was really it. Like there, it was a highly concentrated offense. There were three guys. You compare that to now the Steelers. They have Deontay Johnson. They have Juju Smith-Schuster. They have Najee Harris, obviously, and um, oh Jesus, what's help me out, dude? What's his other name? <laughs> Claypool. Yes, thank you, Chase Claypool. So and they have a tight end. We have a, <laughs> like- and they have a tight end. So now we look at how those players are being utilized. Well, Deontay Johnson is really operating in the role where Le'Veon Bell used to through the pass game. He's being used in that short area, um, move the chains, not even like a possession wide receiver. He's just being used as an extension of the run game through the air. And that is the that is the area of the field where we would want Najee Harris to be most involved. And we didn't see that in week one. The field is going to assume that that was an outlier, but we don't know. We just don't know. There's not enough data points for Najee Harris specifically to be able to confidently say, hey, this guy's going to be Le'Veon Bell from three years ago, four years ago. Like We just don't know. So again, that is not to say Najee Harris is a bad play. He is a top two play on paper on this slate. But that just goes into how I am looking to attack this slate from a game theory and leverage perspective. If the field is so certain about a certain outcome or how a player is going to be used, I'm going to question the hell out of it and find any way for me to figure out that that is not an expected outcome, if that makes sense. Yeah, I wish I could do like emotes to like thumbs up or something like that. I mean, like they've, they've also got, and if you want to poke holes in Najee Harris, it's not just Deontay, right? Ben doesn't throw more than 10 yards downfield anymore. So like he's like, he's competing with a plethora of possession receivers, essentially. You know, Juju's, I don't know what his ADOT was in week one, but like last year, Juju's ADOT was horrendously low. Um, there's more, there's more, tar- there's more targets to go around. The Steelers were one of the pass happiest teams in the league last year. They passed at the second highest rate of any team in the NFL last year behind, um, what is it? I think, actually, I think they even passed, uh, they even more than Buffalo. Oh, Jacksonville, Jacksonville beat them um, in pass rate. Yep. And, um, so like there's a lot, there's, you know, the chances of Anaje getting 20 carries, I don't know, maybe, you know, but it's not a certainty, right? They could just go pass happy. They could, you know, and then it's about where, where do the touchdowns come? You know, Le'Veon Bell was super valuable because he got like 20 plus carries and, you know, six or seven more or more targets and all the goal line work. And, you know, we just don't know what that is for Anaje, right? Like we assume he's going to get the goal line work. He probably will. Um, but is he going to settle into a, like a six, seven target guy? We haven't seen that yet. Um, they're running behind a crappy offensive line. So like you can poke holes in just about any play, especially this week. Yeah. And that's really the big picture to answer your question. Juju <laughs> saw an a dot of 6.3. Deontay Johnson was in the five. So these are the <laughs> basically extension of the run game guys, which mm-hmm. are the role has not really changed too much from last year. So um, that is something that I was looking for specifically with respect to the Steelers. I wanted to see how they folded in this new weapon. And it was really, they were trying to fit him in, in addition to the roles that were already established, as opposed to changing the fundamentals of their offense. Uh, So that's, again, something we'll have to see going forward. But again, something that I think the field is not thinking about this week that we would do well to think about. Mm -hmm. That was a lot again. And we're not really done with the running back position. I want to throw out my absolute now favorite play on the slate. (laughs) 
And that is Naheem Hines, which sounds absolutely crazy. Hilo, you're an idiot. What are you doing? <clears throat> Let me explain. So I broke it down a little bit in the end around. We have a game environment where Vegas is telling us exactly how they think that game is going to go down. We've had an over-under that moved from 45 and a half to now 48. We have almost 98% or something like, or I think it was 87%, something like that of the betting action on the uh, money line has come in on the Rams. So we Vegas is basically telling us that they expect the game to go play to the over, which is a hefty total of 48 points. It's not going to generate a lot of buzz because we have a ton of high over under games uh, on the slate. But they're expecting it to be a high-scoring game. They're expecting for Indy to be playing from behind. What did Indy show us in week one? They showed us that, one, Naheem Hines is healthy. He's still a big part of this offense in negative game scripts. And he's still good at football. Like, this is a dude who we were, like, arguing last, not arguing, but we were talking about last season, about are we going to play him at, at approaching 6K? in expected negative game scripts and he's getting absolutely no buzz but what i love the most about naheem hines is the fundamental alterations or deviations that he creates from the chalk build and like would you be surprised looking and this is a a, a, i guess general question to the room like would you be surprised if we're in reflection for week two uh, on Monday and Tuesday, and we look back, and Naheem Hines had eight to nine targets, and you know, caught seven to eight of them for eighty yards and a score. Like I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't personally, and that's just again something like, could he even outscore like a Najee Harris on that workload? Like maybe I don't know, but I'm willing to take that additional risk in a week like this where the field assumes so much certainty. Off the top of your head, do you know how many uh, running back opportunities Hines saw last week? Oh, God, it was uh, like 12 or 13, something like that. Oh, man. Oh, no. 17. (laughs) Nine carries, eight targets. Like, that's that's not like just a passing down back kind of usage. That's like a split no. backfield kind of usage. And both uh, Hines and Taylor had a ton of pass. I think they had like 15 targets between them. So, you they know, he has, a, he has not much goal line. Terms. Yeah, he doesn't have a lot of goal line equity. But like this is an offense that's going to throw to the running backs a lot. And, you know, T.Y. Hilton's out. I think Pittman's now questionable. And I think is Campbell questionable? <laughs> Someone is. I don't know. Pittman, They're like racked by injuries. Pittman and, Pittman and Paris Campbell are questionable. They're only fully healthy wide receiver. Um, starting wide receiver to start the year uh, are the rookies Strachman um, and uh, oh god Pascal Pascal thank you yeah, I don't Pascal. know why I'm struggling with names so much I appreciate <laughs> you being here <laughs> but yeah like Hines put up 14 points he didn't get a touchdown like this is another question where I would ask myself what would Hines's ownership be if he'd gotten into the end zone he would have scored over 20 DraftKings points if he if you just add a touchdown to his line 4700 and people will be seeing that. Um, I don't know. They'd be seeing, you know, eight targets. They'd be seeing nine. They'd be seeing seventeen running back opportunities, twenty DraftKings points, and I'm I'm convinced his ownership would be much higher if uh, if he'd gotten into the end zone. And so that tells me, right? Like we can't predict touchdowns. We can predict usage, and his usage was fantastic. What are the running back at that price range got that kind of usage? Exactly, and that's kind of what I'm keying on. And I didn't arrive at that play until probably yesterday morning and it just it the light bulb clicked where 
it was the perfect mix of a deviation from the chalk build with expected workload with low ownership. And I was just like, oh my God, this is the guy I was looking for right here. Um, but anyway, like expanding that ideal further, would you then be more um, inclined to pair him with a mid-range running back or would you play the extremes there if you're playing a guy like Hines? I think I would play the extremes with, I mean, I, I'm doing 150. So like, I'm not going to restrict it and say like, if Hines must only play another cheap running back, but if I'm building by hand there, I think mm-hmm. where you're going to achieve more differentiation and you're already achieving a lot of differentiation just by using Hines because he's low owned. But from a construction standpoint, you have to imagine most of the field that's going to be spending sub 5k to running back. One of the, the, the one of the most attractive reasons they're doing so is so they can spend up at the other either at the running back position and get like a CMC or a Camara, or they're going to play Carson or uh, Harris and they're going to spend up at receiver. And so like the way it's you can either do you can use that salary instead to pay up at tight end by and or go double cheap running back. Um, so I like I, I try to think about it not just in terms of like individual plays, but in terms of the pairings and and how that achieves more differentiation. So yeah, you know, if I was if I was building by hand um, for a hand built lineup that had Heinz, I would probably be looking at somebody like Damian Harris or lower, um, maybe Daryl Henderson or lower. Yeah, and that's kind of how I'm attacking the slate. When we talked about the <laughs> tight end position, nobody's paying up. We talked about the running position, nobody's paying down. You know, which could alter a little bit or change a little bit with the Josh Jacobs news, um, obviously with Kenyon Drake, but Naheem Hines isn't in that group of pay down players. Um, so if nobody's paying up at tight end and nobody's paying down at running back, if I do both of those on a roster, I've, I've generated so much, an insane amount of leverage and I can just go play the chalk everywhere else and not have to worry about anything. Um, so that's really the two funnels for the chalk build this week that are most pertinent to, you know, fundamental roster construction. Um, so with that, I think we can call it a day, dude. What do you think? I'm just kidding. Let's continue. Just play some. Let's play some receivers. All whatever. right. Let's. Yeah. <laughs> let's do some. Yeah. Throw in whatever receivers you want. Pull the blender. It doesn't matter uh, at this point. Uh, all right. Let's jump to wide receiver. Let's talk about that. We know. Um, looking at expected ownership, which uh, I'm leaning on a little bit more uh, heavily this year because um, I've. I, I think this offseason did me well in finding the balance between um, understanding why, obviously understanding why a player is uh, expected to be heavily owned uh, with the projections that lead to that. So um, again, I wanted last year, I, I was, I famously barely looked at ownership and I, I did so because I wanted to, you know, put these game theoretic principles uh, to the test and see basically my personal outcome and it was it had mixed results but overall profitable and now i'm really really trying to hammer down uh that edge from the process standpoint uh and pulling in ownership a little bit earlier in the week that being said the you know top four projected wide receivers are cooper cup and then three wide receivers from the dallas and uh chargers game that is a given and all four of those guys, without a doubt, are extremely, extremely solid plays. You know, like I alluded to earlier, with paying up at tight end, paying down at running back, you know, how I'm personally attacking this slate, I'm able to play any and all of those guys if I wanted to on a roster and immediately be differentiated. But 
let's take the the game theory lessons and the overall just DFS theory lessons away from that and figure out what is the most optimal way to play, you know, a slate like this where we're expected to have such a heavy concentration on the perceived, you know, top game environment in the Cowboys and Chargers. My personal take on it is I am much more certain with the potential outcomes or the range of outcomes for Amari Cooper, for Keenan Allen, for CD Lamb than I am for the running backs that we, you know, the chalk running backs that we talked about earlier. And again, that goes over to your own individual process and how you're seeing the slate and how you want to generate that leverage. But for me, I am much more certain in the game environment from Dallas and uh, LA than I am in those running backs. So I am comfortable generating my leverage elsewhere and absolutely hammering this game. Um, So ways that you can do that to still generate a little bit of leverage is overstack, like JM mentioned, you know, playing Dak Prescott with CeeDee Lamb, with Amari Cooper, who, you know, would we, again, in reflection, look back and be surprised if those two wide receivers combined for greater than 30 targets again? Like, again, I personally wouldn't. So that is a situation where I'm personally more comfortable being over that situation than I am the unknowns on the perceived uh, knowns from the field at the running back position. X, what are your thoughts there? You... Yeah, I'm with you on the game, on that environment. I think it's, it's much easier to predict game environments than it is to predict player outcomes. And so, you know, when it, when a player is extremely chalky outside of game environment, that's where I have a hard time getting behind that as a really fantastic play. Um, when a player is chalky in a great game environment, that's where I'm more willing to just to accept that. Like CD, uh, Amari, Keenan, and then to a lesser extent, Mike Williams, Jared Cook, uh, you can throw Cedric Wilson, Austin Eckler, um, Jay, uh, Guyton, you can throw all those guys in there. I'm, I love all those plays, and I am probably, I'm probably going to have uh, at least one player from that game in just about all of the 150 I build. Some of the other chalky plays that are up there, I'm less confident in. So like Cooper Cup, Robert Woods are both pretty chalky with Cup leading the way based on his huge performance in week one. And, and that's, you know, and Cup is not a bad play. He's a great receiver. He, he's got a quarterback upgrade. Um, it's high total game. But you've also got two, you know, ta- I, think, I think you phrase it this way. Like I'm generally not in the business of, of heavily, heavy, heavy exposure to, you know, games with two top 10 defenses. Right. Um, the next highest in receiver is Chris Godwin, who again, great game environment for Tampa um, in that they're projected to score a ton of points. Um, but that's such a spread offense that it's really hard for me to envision using Godwin as a one off with any real degree of confidence that he's going to be the guy this week when I could instead play Mike Evans or Antonio Brown for less salary at one third the ownership. Like is Chris Godwin really three X as likely to hit than compared to Evans or Brown? Like if I'm gonna if I'm gonna use a one off from that game, I prefer the ones I get at much lower ownership than Godwin. And Godwin's an amazing player. Um, so that's kind of how I start picking apart the high owned receivers as I look at game environment and I look at team concentration and just how confident I am in the environment hitting and then in that player being a critical piece of that environment. And especially then looking at you know ownership. Like the Tampa Bay game's great. There's a decent chance we get. Uh, I get a good score out of it from someone. Um, although to Hilo's point, 
Tampa is so spread that we might not. Tampa Tampa could score 30 points without any single uh, player outside of Brady putting up 20 DraftKings points. Um, but if I do want to go there for my one-offs, like I'm just going to pick the low-owned guys instead of the high-owned guys. Yeah, 100%. And another thing that I purposefully left out of the running back discussion because it tied so well into the wide receiver discussion, the... You know, some of the highest ownership at the wide receiver position outside of the Chargers and um, and Cowboys game is with the Rams passing attack with Cooper Cup and Robert Woods. So what it, when I immediately see that and leveraging the field's perceived certainty in that situation, like what what does Hilo immediately think? I'm like, oh, Darrell Henderson, he saw, you know. 100% of the running back opportunities until late, late in the fourth corner when they brought Sony Michelle in. What if, what if that type of usage carries forward into week two? Like the field doesn't think it will because, oh, Sony has another uh, week to learn the system and, and get in there, mix in there a little bit heavier. But what if Darrell Henderson is just an every down back now? Like we don't know. Or what if he is for the next two or three weeks? Like we don't know. What if Sonny Michelle is just bad? Talking about like, I think we kind of do know that. What what if? <laughs> I don't think we have to say what if. I think just Sonny <laughs> Michelle is just bad. <laughs> but yeah, like again, that just goes to questioning everything. So the field is so certain that the fantasy points are going to be scored through the passing game. We have Cooper Cup, we have uh, Robert Woods, we have Tyler Higby, <clears throat> who are all projected to be you know amongst the top ten owned players on the entire slate. Well, okay, well, I'll just, I'll pair Naheem Hines and Darrell Henderson who are running backs from the same game and the, the leverage just keeps going and going. And those two paired together are how I'm attacking this slate heavily at yeah. running back positions because if, if there's we, just if so much leverage a, created. Sorry. Um, if we can do a bit of a math exercise for a minute, Matthew Stafford is projected at 3% ownership roughly. Um, Higby, you know, 22, uh, Cooper cup, about 20, Robert Woods, about 13. So that's over 50% ownership from these three Rams, uh, receivers. And, you know, they're a good team. Um, we know that it's unlikely that very many rosters will be double stacking those guys unless they're using Stafford. So when we add up all that ownership and kind of subtract Stafford, uh, where there's potential double stacks, double stacks, if these numbers are correct, which they may not be, but if they are something like 40% to 50% of the rosters in the field are going to have one of these three Rams receivers. And in my mind, that's just like that game environment is not solid enough to justify that level of exposure. So, you know, for me, my approach to this is going to be having zero Rams receivers. I'll have some Henderson, um, but I'm I might have a smidge, maybe, but like I should take that back. Maybe not zero, but out of 150. But like, I think the right approach if we played this slate 100 times is that if 50 percent of the field has a Rams receiver, just don't play Rams receivers. The co- the combined ownership of the Cowboys receivers and of the Chargers receivers who are in the best game environment of the slate, the undoubted best game environment of the slate is is lower than that. The Rams are actually the highest owned uh, receivers if you add up all the receiver ownership. It's the Rams, which is baffling to me. Oh man, I feel like light bulbs are coming on with respect to how to attack a slate like this. I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, and again, this isn't to say like, go, go build Najee Harris and Darrell Henderson lineups and call it a day. Like, this is just to say like, this is one way to generate 
a great deal of leverage without making suboptimal plays. Um, and that just goes into, again, just questioning everything this week. Um, yeah, I think that... Can I, can I mention my one dead. other favorite spot too, if I may? Yes, please do. So this is a leverage spot and a game environment spot. So the highest total game on this slate is, of course, Dallas uh, Dallas uh, Chargers, um, which is you know open at 52. It's gone up to 54 and a half. Um, the second highest total game environment in the slate is Titans at Seahawks, which opened at 52 and a half, has gone up to 53 and a half. Um, this game, uh, the Hawks are favored by just about a touchdown. And the Titans, of course, just fell on their face in week one. Imagine if the Titans hadn't fallen over their face. Imagine if the Titans had been competitive. This game might have had a higher total, right? They might have had a higher team total than 23 uh, and a half. Um, so this game might be the highest total game on the slate. And this game might be the one that we were, ta- that we were talking about. So we talked about ownership a lot on the, the Chargers-Cowboys game. We talked about it on the Rams offense. Uh, we know Chris Carson is going to be one of the highest end plays of the slate. Uh, Russ Wilson, 5%. Ryan Tannehill, two and a half percent. The receivers in that game, the highest uh, projected is AJ Brown at 8.7%. You can get Lockett at seven and a half. You can get Metcalf at five and a half. You can get Julio Jones at 3.7. You can get the tight ends at like 3% or less if you want to fill, if you want to do a cheap tight end to mix in with your game stack. Like that gives you leverage off the Carson chalk. And this is a this is probably the second best game environment of the slate. This is the second highest total game. The next going after that is um either Falcons at Bucks or Vikings at Cardinals, um, which are both 51, so two and a half points lower. So this is this is one point, just one point below the game that's attracting all of the attention. And like to me, that's like, I'm going to have a lot of exposure to Dallas Chargers because that's a fantastic game environment. Um, you know, we've also got like, you know, Chris Harris is out, which improves CD Lamb's matchup. Like this just a wonder, you know, multiple Dallas defensive guys are out. Um, but the I want to have almost as much exposure to Seahawks Titans as I do to Dallas Chargers, because I think that's, you know, if we play the slate out 100 times, uh, Dallas Chargers would probably be the game that generates the most uh, the most tournament winning fantasy scores. But I think that Titan Seahawks wouldn't be that far behind, but the ownership is going to be way behind. Yeah, exactly. Because the, the only situation where players from that game completely fail is like a absolute trouncing from one side or the other. And you look at the expected ownership from the game compared to the chances of that being a viable outcome. And it is absolutely lopsided. So if those players, you know, from Seattle and uh, from that whole game were expected in the Rams pass catchers range for ownership, you know, Lockett coming off that big game, if he was expected mm-hmm. to garner that, that level of ownership, like it would be a different story, but they're not. And so again, that is a, a situation definitely to capitalize. I love that call. Yeah, Russ is the seventh highest projected QB in ownership. Like you've got, I mean, he's expensive to be fair. Tannehill's pretty expensive for Ryan Tannehill. But like at the end of the day, you don't care about like salary doesn't matter uh, when a guy has a ceiling like both those guys do, right? If they hit their ceiling, you don't care that you paid a couple hundred dollars too much. Um, and the and the receiver salaries are where they normally are ish, right? They're in the reasonable ranges. So like, I feel like that game is just going way overlooked. I, I would guess it probably gets a little bit of attention and, and, and momentum um, between now and Sunday morning. But like, it's weird to me that if you look at game environments and like one of the things I like to do is look at, 
game invite look at each game and then sum up the ownership of all the players in that game to just say like basically how much of the field is how much is the field paying attention to this game and so that's how i got like you know the rams game is like the rams are the highest owned team overall um for skill position players but like once you take out carson that game is like completely dust no one's paying attention to it and that just feels that's that's opportunity to me yep i love it I love it. And one thing with salary, salary matters when you're building lineups. That salary does not matter once the first kick happens. Like salary is almost irrelevant other than what I want to talk about next, other than late swap. And this week is absolutely ripe for late swap opportunities. X, do you want to talk to us a little bit about late swap and kind of uh, the overall outlook on a slate like this where there's so many high uh vegas game totals in the afternoon oh man i cannot wait for this one because so there's like there's two sort of levels of late swap usage right one level of it is realizing uh oh shit right like this roster is failing and i should try to swap it around so i can have some chance of success by getting off the chalky plays in the late games right like that's people do that in cash head-to-heads um sometimes in tournaments a little bit but like really that's you know that's that's mostly used for like that sort of oh shit moment um but where i think there's a lot of opportunity in a slate like this is being ready to late swap as you're building your rosters so like we talked about tight end ownership right um higby and fant are the lion's share of that and they're both in early games which gives us so much knowledge right so if if higby or fant goes off uh and and you play you know kyle pitts who who doesn't go off actually i'm sorry kyle pitts is also in a late game isn't he yes he is um right i guess yeah, um, but like you have you have so much knowledge of like what of where to go. Um, if you have a roster with Higby on it and it fails, well, like you know that he's failed at high ownership. If you have a roster of Higby on it that he hits, that gives you you know you can do something else with that roster, right? Like, um, so I think there's a lot of opportunity to kind of build, knowing that you're going to get more knowledge as the day goes on. And so if you decide to completely fade both Higby and Fant, and let's say the nightmare scenario happens, you have zero Higby, zero Fant. And they both put up to over 20 points. Um, you know you're in trouble, right? Realistically, if that happens, you're in trouble because now 40% of the rosters have gotten like a 5x multiplier out of their tight end position. Um, and so in that scenario, I would probably not punt tight end because we know realistically that those little those cheap like 3K tight ends, like Dalton Schultz, Blake Jarwin, you know, Pruitt, those guys probably don't have 20 plus point upside in any scenario. And so you know you're probably drawing dead. What you need to do in that scenario, in my mind, is you need to look for the the tight ends who have realistic ceilings that are above that. And that's like Pitts. Uh, I think Kittle's already played by then. Has Waller played by then? I don't even know the schedule. I think Waller has played by then, hasn't he? So that's, yeah. it's Pitts, right? Like Pitts is the one. Um, so like if I would swap all my tight end exposure to Pitts in that scenario, because he's the only guy I think that has real a realistic chance at outperforming that like that 20 point game that Higby and Fant have put up. But if Higby and Fant both bust, then you are sitting so pretty. And at that point, uh, you know, you don't have to go very off the board. Right. And so you could even consider saying like, like, let's say you have a fair bit of like these long shot plays like like Shelton Jarwin. Um, you might want to consider saying, OK, I don't need to be so long shot at those plays because 40 percent of the field just died. Right. Like 40 percent of the field just got like sub 10 points from their tight end. And so maybe you say, OK, I'll get off of these like really thin punt options and I'll just I'll get a guy who I'm like highly, highly confident 
confident in is going to outscore that like six or eight points that Fanton Higby put up. And so then maybe I'd say, OK, Gronk's not in my player pool uh, off the bat, but maybe there is like, OK, maybe I'll switch some to Gronk um, because he's you know, he we know he's going to be involved. He's highly likely to outscore those um, the cheap guy like or, or the the other cheaper guys. And so, like, I think that like that this is an interesting slate because you can kind of plan ahead for some of that because we know that so much of the ownership is concentrated late. It also gives you opportunity to take some shots on some like one-off plays in the early games um, and, and then think that like, okay, uh, if I get those right and I get like a low, like let's say I get a low owned Deontay Johnson in the early games and he smashes and Harris fails. Now I know I'm way ahead on any of my Deontay Johnson rosters. And now I can say, okay, I'm just going to take those Deontay Johnson rosters and I'm going to build them around the best game environment of the slate of Dallas chargers because you know, I've already got a low on Deontay Johnson, so like I can do whatever I want on the rest of my ro- on the rest of that roster, and know that I'm, you know, know that I'm going to be competitive owner- from an ownership perspective, right? Um, or if you get like, a, or you know, if you have a high owned guy who fails, then you say, okay, well, if I had Najee Harris and he fails, and that was a Najee Harris the Dallas Chargers stack, then maybe I switch that one to like a Falcons Bucks stack or a Titans uh, Seahawks stack. Right. And, you know, you may not win a tournament in that case. Right. If you have like six points from Najee Harris, um, but you can still put yourself in a position where you can potentially recover in cash. And if you play cash games, uh, this is even more powerful in that way. Right. Like if you play cash games and you got Najee Harris in the early slate and Najee fails, uh, then swap off, you know, swap off the other highly owned plays and try to get different as a way to try and recover. It's like I love this slate because of the like whenever there's a really whenever there's really, really low ownership on the early slate, I love it because you can sort of like strategically take shots on rosters in those early games. And then you can based on whether or not those shots hit and then based on whether guys like the Rams game hits or not, you know, you can you can like be you can smartly adjust for the rest of the slate. Yeah, the the biggest expected ownership from the morning's uh, bunch of games is from that uh, Rams game. So. That's a definite interesting um, way to approach this. And that'll lead us right into the quarterbacks, which we, we covered a lot of them. Really, the quarterback um, expected ownership is extremely flat for this week. There's really nobody who stands out from an expected ownership perspective. One thing I do really want to highlight that uh, I actually gleaned from a talk that I had earlier today with Todd from PA. Um, is Jalen Hurts. And you know I'm a big – everybody and their grandmother knows I'm a huge Jalen Hurts supporter. Well, when you look at the overall composition of this week, you are directly pe- competing with any Jalen Hurts shares. You're directly competing with Justin Herbert and Dak Prescott and Josh Allen and Tom Brady, who are all within that same price tier. So from a theory perspective – Jalen Hurts loses a whole lot of luster uh, for this slate. So along that same line of thinking, um, a better way to differentiate as opposed to, you know, coming off the expected top ownership for a guy like Jalen Hurts is a full pay up to guys like Kyler Murray or even Russell Wilson, uh, as was previously mentioned, or a pay down. Um, Other than that, Full on blender mode, play who you want. Make sure it is done correctly uh, or smartly, I should say. Um, Make sure you are correlating. Make sure all that good stuff in general DFS theory 
is happening with respect to quarterback position. Really not much else to talk to there. Do you have any parting shots on quarterbacks before we move over to defense? Yeah, two super briefly. One is um, there is so much ownership on the Rams receivers and nobody wants to play Matt Stafford. And so like my the way I approach that, like I said before, one way to approach that is saying, look, if 50% of the rosters are going to have a Rams receiver, then I'll just not play any Rams receivers and just hope they all crash and burn and half the field dies. Um, the other angle to play that, which I'll do on some of my rosters, is say, okay, everyone wants to play Rams receivers, but no one wants to stack this game, right? Like there's really no ownership on the Colts anywhere. Stafford's 3%. So if 50% of the field has Rams receivers, why not play like Stafford and Higby and Cup and our boy Naheem Hines? And like, you know, that way, if that game environment actually really goes off, then I'm positioned that way. Because like what the field is doing by saying, we want enormous exposure to Rams receivers, but no other exposure to that game. They're saying essentially the field is saying we think only one guy in this game is going to have a good game and no one else. And that's a really unlikely outcome. Like it's possible, but more than likely either that game sort of falls flat overall and no one has a huge score, like a tourney worthy, a tourney worthy score, like, you know, 25 plus points or uh, the, if, the game goes off and we get multiple tourney worthy scores coming out of it. And so I kind of want to like, I want to bet sort of that barbell end, you know, I want to bet, like, I don't want to bet the middle, right? I want to be like, I want to be in a position where if that game really goes off and the Rams smash, I'm positioned to, I'm positioned to succeed there by having, you know, a, a double stack with a bring back. Or if the game doesn't go off, then I'm positioned there by just not having any Rams on any roster that doesn't have Stafford on it. Yeah, that is super, super sharp. Love it. I will also mention, if you, yeah, if you want to pay down at quarterback, uh, I think there's, I think there's some interesting options down there. Like there's a few, but I think the, my favorite would be Tua, um, whose last name I will not even attempt to pronounce. Um, but the the Bills and the Dolphins have played some uh, pretty uh, high scoring games in the last couple of years, and yeah. uh, you know Josh Allen always seems to show up against the Dolphins. I have no idea what it is. Um, Tua is looking pretty capable towards the end of last season and beginning of this one and you know, lots of preseason hype and he's got a new shiny toy with Jalen Waddle. So like that's a, you know, if you want to pay way down, um, I think that that kind of, that, that helps you differentiate from the field if you, with a, with a cheap quarterback. Although in all honesty, I think that sort of like pay down at quarterback, like meta that we saw a few years ago has, has largely vanished because the, the top quarterbacks just bring such massive ceilings nowadays. Yeah, the the delta from expected range of outcomes from those top guys is just so great now uh, compared to those low guys. I love it, man. Uh, anything else to add at the quarterback position? Nope. All right, real quickly, we'll jump into defense. We've gone about 20 minutes over when we were supposed to, so that's my bad. Uh, Crap. But I think all of this was uh, real, real good stuff. Um Real quick with the defense position, I talked on or I touched on it last week. How I go about selecting my favorite defense on the slate is going to be the Steelers at 3K. Um, again, they basically generated like 36%, something like that, pressure rate in week one without blitzing a single time. That was extremely shocking to me. Um, so, again, playing off those unknowns, like we know that. Pittsburgh is generally a very blitz heavy team. Like what if they dial up those blitzes this week against a extremely overmatched offensive line? I really, really like the Steelers at three K everything below three K there is a tough grab 
uh, from defense, extremely bare below that. So that is kind of the lowest. I think I will personally be going this week. Um, but then you talk about like the pay up defenses. Cleveland is expected to garner ownership at 3,500, um, against Houston. Um, they have the ability to put up, um, some pressures in the backfield. But what I saw from Tyrod Taylor is he was extremely mobile in week one. And obviously we highlighted in week one, his propensity to not make mistakes when under pressure with that extremely low career interception rate, lower than Aaron Rodgers, which is mm-hmm. insane. Uh, so that's, that's where a lot of the field will be going. Um, what are your, what's your favorite defense for this week? Um, I, I think the Steelers is the like clear best defense on the slate. Um, and unlike what often happens when there's a clear best defense on the slate, they're not projecting at massive ownership. They're projected at like 10%, which is fine. Um, the highest on defense is projected to be the Jets, which doesn't make much sense to yeah. me. Um, and, and then the next and then the next one after the Steelers is Minnesota. And I think that like people have gotten ingrained that whole pay down at defense thing. Um, kind of like that whole cheap QB meta, right? Like people get used to the strategies uh, of DFS and then they don't adjust fast enough as things shift. And so that old pay down at defense, because you can't predict defense like, yeah, sure. Sometimes, uh, you know, a cheap defense that, uh, that is highly owned can go off, but like when you want to de- you want it for a defense, you want a lot of dropbacks, uh, right. new England and Arizona do not project for a ton of dropbacks. You want a, uh, a shaky offensive line. You want a, a predict, uh, an immobile and, or uh, mistake prone quarterback, none of which are true. And for so the Jets in Minnesota make no sense to me. I think you could make a bad game, a shaky argument for playing the Chargers if you're not playing that game. And that's kind of that hope and pray play of like, gee, I sure maybe maybe the Chargers defense is good enough to slow down the Cowboys and that results in that game disappointing as a whole. And so I'm just going to cross my fingers. Um I don't think that's a great play. I think that the way that game, the way that game fails is not through the Chargers defense being elite. It's just through scoring being distributed to a degree that like we don't get a whole bunch of smash scores. Um, I like New England's defense against a Zach Wilson, a good pass rush. Zach Wilson looked fairly overmatched in his first start. Uh, you know, Denver defense, I think, is OK. They're expensive, but they've got a matchup against oh, what, Trevor Lawrence through what, two or three picks in his first start. Yeah, um, three you know, Tampa has that Tampa has that strong pass rush against immobile QB um, situation. It's so like the the best defense is in my mind. I mean, Pittsburgh is relatively inexpensive, but unfortunately, the other ones I really like are are all pay up. I think you could argue that you could consider going back to the well with Arizona, which I think was the top performing defense of week one. They were on, you know, they were they were. I think they were the the one that was on like the Millie, the Millie Maker winner. Yeah, they um, were. Their pass rush, their secondary is suspect, but their pass rush is really good. And we've seen Kirk Cousins struggle against. Um, against good pass rushes. The Minnesota O-line is only okay, if I remember right. Um, so I kind of want to dig into that matchup a little more and just look at the O-line for Minnesota because I don't remember it super well. But like, I think that you can make an argument that that pass rush in Arizona is, is has been significantly upgraded. And as we saw in week one, 
the field seems to have not realized it yet. I didn't realize it, to be honest. I didn't I didn't play Arizona defense in week one. So, you know, that's on me. Um, but like that's kind of where you want to take some of your shots, right? Isn't these changing defensive identities before we know, um, you know, so people who played Arizona, Arizona D, they got great leverage on a highly owned Titans team. Uh, and, and they got the like they got that sort of defensive re- uh, makeover. Um, they were earlier to the party, right? Before the field realized, oh, hey, Arizona's pass rush is actually pretty nasty now, right? They were like uh, people who played Arizona week one were on top of that. So I don't mind going back to the well a little bit there uh, in just in case, you know, we see that like Arizona's defense is now actually really freaking good um, before, you know, before the field seems to really catch on and they become really, 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 really popular. But like yeah, at the end of the like- day, Pittsburgh's the best, I think. Yep. Concur. With the Cardinals, I live in Arizona. I should have been on that as well. Chandler Jones is one of the the top maybe two, maybe three. He's he's one of the best edge rushers in the game. And they added J.J. Watt to Chandler Jones, which is uh, insane. I should have been on that as well, and I wasn't last week. So, yeah, uh, yeah it's, definitely it's learning. scary pass rush combo. And we've seen Kirk Cousins yeah. struggle in that scenario as well, right? So, and, and like all these defenses I'm talking about are because I'm playing 150 lineups. If I was playing like one lineup or three lineups, like I'd probably just have Pittsburgh on every single one. Yeah, I will be very heavy Pittsburgh. I will, I'm toying around with between 15 and 20 lineups and uh, they will be on a vast majority. Actually, my second favorite defense uh, early week was the Vikings um, because their defensive identity matched up very clearly well with how Arizona was going to try and win this game in that they're going to be looking to clog the interior run lanes um, and force third and long situations. Um, You know, when teams are third and long, anything can happen. But now that they're expected to be of over 10% owned uh, Kendricks is out. Um, who's their best uh, run stopper. It, there's just a lot uh, or I guess more not to like about that situation. Yeah. I, just, agree I, I have a hard time playing defenses against highly mobile quarterbacks in general. And yeah. that, that, that might be a leak, right? Like I'm not saying that's right. That could be a mistake on my part, but like that's, I, I just, I have a hard time looking at like a super mobile quarterback who can more easily evade sacks uh, than, you know, than, than other than a, a statuesque quarterback and being like, yes, that's the one I want. Statuesque. I like that definition or that description. <laughs> Thank you. That was nice. All right, man. I think that's going to do it. I want to bring in uh, or, I don't know if Aaron wants to jump in or if we just want to invite um, Sonic up here. Let me try and find Sonic here. Send him is an he, invite. Is he in here? Sonic, raise your hand. Oh. I saw him earlier. Maybe we went so there long he that he's like, I got to go. There, no, he there he is. Okay, invite sent to right, Sonic. I invited to speak. Maybe he's shy. <laughs> I sent him one too. Maybe we overloaded. Oh no! How do we break it? There you. Oh, that's Aaron. Damn it! Sorry, Aaron. That was rude. Aaron, help! So can I hey, just Sonic, note if you're, on the side if you're looking as we wait for this? Go ahead, X. I think Sonic is exposing his Sonic is exposing his level of technical acumen here. Yeah, I sent him a message. I was saying while uh, we're talking about this, uh, I have I, I also play Dynasty Fantasy Baseball, and I am in the middle of a heroic comeback in the first round playoffs of a points league I'm in. So I'm very excited. 
Totally nice. Is that a two-week or one-week? I am smashing that button, but nothing's happening. Oh, it's Sonic. one week. There he What's is. Up? There we are. I was... What is up, boys? My technical acumen notwithstanding. <laughs> dude, By the way, gonna... dude, I just need to go back to your tight end take and, and, and just let everybody know that he's, he's not my Cole Pruitt. He's, he's your Cole Pruitt. Ah, uh, there it is. Sorry, dad, get... dad joke. Uh, we should bring Todd up here, too. God. <laughs> Todd is yeah, the Todd, king of that, the dad that jokes. That for Todd, the dad joke for Todd. Oh, my God, yes. Shout out to Todd. <laughs> awesome to talk to you all, man. It's cool to be, uh, to be up here. You guys are doing an awesome job. I just learned a ton. Oh, that's awesome, dude. So what you want to talk to us a little bit about the late swap theory. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, my whole idea about, you know, it's, it's already an inherent edge, just the fact that we're doing it because like 80% of the field is at a barbecue or they're already sauced or something. And they're not even taking advantage of fact of the fact that they can change stuff around, you know? Yes. To um, both, by the way. <laughs> And, and it's like, how do we exploit that further? Like, how do we kick that into overdrive and exploit that further? And what I'm doing in MME is I'm building clone lineups where I'm trying to find a couple. Uh, in th this week, actually, I'm shooting for only two or three uh, players to roster that are like somewhat inexpensive, relatively low owned. But, you know, with a ceiling and then so I'll start a lineup with three of those players and then fill it in with uh, late game guys. Doesn't even really matter who the late games guys are. Just fill it in and make five copies of that lineup. And then. Depending on the results, of course, of the early games, now we're playing a game with less incomplete. information. We actually have a little bit more. Uh, information to act upon and that our opponents aren't and so as you provided earlier x like if those lineups underwhelm um then we're left with swapping off of chalk and shooting for high ceiling low owned guys in the late games just to get us over the pay line you know like last week it was swap out your callaways and get yourself over the pay line with an MVS and hope that MVS smashes and Callaway does what Callaway actually did. Right. Um, and, but you know, the good news could happen is if you roster these three or four dudes in the morning and they all have ceiling or close to ceiling games, then you're sort of cooking with gas and you can go with the chalky Dallas you know, chargers build and do a few variations off of that. And then you have five different lineups now with three, four common players that all gave you a great head start. And then you can sort of diversify your winning portfolio um, from that start. And now you have, you know, your five different lineups that all um, are going to be fun to sweat in the afternoon. Yeah, man, I love that. Um, entering the dummy lineups with, you know, one common piece of ceiling from the morning games where, you know, obviously we have all these afternoon games that are 
expected to be, you know, the higher scoring games, but there are going to be, you know, fantasy players that have production from the morning. So um, trying to pick out, you know, onesie twosies and then creating, um, you know, three, four, five different lineups that all have that similar player on it. And then the rest of the players being from the afternoon, that's super, super sharp. I love that. Well, man, yeah, I just want to make sure everyone was like uh, aware that that's, you know, that's a way to think in extremes if we want to really, you know, maximize the edge we get um, from the late swap. You know, it's like poker is a game of incomplete information, but, um, you know, the late swap, you know, if you're in the fourth quarter of the er early games, you've essentially seen the flop, you know, and, and, and a bunch of your opponents didn't look at the flop and you're just and you but you're still playing so uh it's an edge i think we just kind of find ways to uh, crush it as quickly as possible so yeah so talking to mme like what kind of i guess what percentage of your rosters are you looking to execute that uh that game plan this week this week i'm going with it's looking about like 20 to 25 percent i've got six different template lineups and i'm gonna do five to six clones of each so we're talking somewhere in the 25 to 30 lineups range um actually 30 to you know plus lineups and uh, you know some of them i'll end up just uh, uh, uh abandoning like i did with the uh raheem mostair dummy lineups last week where it's like look, this guy gave me a zero and there's no coming back from that so uh it'll look dumb when they look me up on the rg database uh and see that i played the same awful lineup five times but yeah. uh, that doesn't matter <laughs> I, I just want to you know a lot of times we're scrambling during that fourth quarter right it's like we're you know if i'm swapping that many lineups then i'll probably just leave the ones that uh blown and work on the ones with massive upside first and then the ones that i'm trying to sneak over the pay line uh try to get those in before lock of the late games yeah i love it man that's super sharp good good, good stuff lads i'll uh show myself out see if you guys want to get anyone else up here holy shit scott barrett's here what's up scott we have a celebrity shout out to scott <laughs> <laughs> i've been hearing scott's voice in my ear all summer talking about best ball shares and stuff so oh uh, look he's on stage what up scott all right guys i think that is gonna do it for this week did we do yeah, any questions yeah we're wrapping it up uh, what's going on man i actually uh, missed everything i uh Oh, yeah, we cannot hear is you. Scott actually in. Is he in the shower? I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I can't really hear you, brother. <laughs> hey, hi, are we going to do we have any time for any uh, any questions? <laughs> I feel like in true OWS yeah. fashion, right? We went yeah, like I got it, time it, to stick around for. I was gonna say, like in true OWS fashion, much like JM, our namesake, we uh, you know, went way, way, way over um, in our from our planned time. So yeah. thanks for sticking with us. Let's pull it. Yep, there's Aaron. Yeah, let's take some questions, Aaron. 
All right, let's get going here, guys. Can you hear me okay? Uh-huh. All right. First question. Um, a lot of it was late swap today, so I'm going to jump into the next uh, couple questions we have. One was from uh, MN Gopher 21. Is there such thing as too much correlation? And he gave an example from week one, which was Cousins plus Jefferson plus Thielen plus Higgins, then Kamara plus MVS and uh, Javante Williams and Denver D. He wants to know if that's too much correlation um, or is it just a roster that didn't work out? Well, there's probably two parts to that answer. One, from a theoretic standpoint, there's no such thing as too much correlation. It, you could be correlating improperly, which is a, a mistake. But the, I guess the way to, I guess the way to answer that is to break it down to how JM explains total available fantasy points from each team in varying game environments. So, I mean, if you're stacking a, the passing attack for Minnesota, for example, like KJ Osborne just kind of wrecked that stack because he ended up playing, you know, Minnesota went from a, a bottom five offense with respect to 11 personnel rates to a top five in week one, which was seemingly out of nowhere. Um, and then KJ Osborne ended up, you know, seeing nine targets, seven catches for whatever it was. So no, there's no such thing as too much correlation, but there is a such thing as correlating improperly, if that makes sense. Yeah. I will say like, you have to make sure there's enough goodness to go around. Right. And if you go look like the Vikings are a tight offense, but they're not a prolific passing offense. And so like my rule is always one Viking, um, but I very rarely play two. And so like Kirk Cousins uh, does not, in my mind, possess the kind of ceiling that you need in tournament play. Like you can get you can get most of the Vikings goodness without Cousins. Um, and it's very rare, especially at their now much higher prices compared to like midpoint last season. It's, ext- it's exceedingly rare for both Thielen and Jefferson to hit a ceiling game in the same game. At least that's been my, it doesn't mean it can't ever happen, but it hasn't really happened in the past. Yep. I'll concur with that. All right. But that's sad, question. right? Like what you're doing with. Uh, okay. No, go ahead, X. Go ahead and finish that. Sorry. Time. It's the delay. Of, it, it, it's the delay of Discord. Um, sorry. It's, uh, you know, what you're doing with correlation is essentially you're trying to, to try to minimize the number of things that you need to get right. Right. Like I thought that MVS was a spectacular uh, play last week when we had Camara and Callaway and Adams all projected for high ownership. And so like playing Camara MVS together is a way to get Camara, who is objectively a good play, um, but correlate him with someone who no one's going to use. Right. I don't remember what MVS's ownership ended up coming in at, but it was really low. Um, and then, you know, the Vikings, I think you might have overdone it a little bit on the on the Vikings core stack. Um, but like, and then, you know, Javante Williams was a, a high risk play because he was in a timeshare and we didn't know how that was going to shake out, but like Javante could have gotten that, that 70 yard TD run at the end of the game that the MG three got, right. That could have easily gone the other way. Um, Higgins could have outperformed chase, right. Chase, chase had the bigger game. So the overall struck, the overall like thought process, I think was sound. Um, I think the I think it was a little overexposed to Vikings. Um, but at the end of the day, what you're trying to do is reduce the number of things you need to get right. 
through correlated plays. And so I think that there's there's no such thing as too much. All right, next question. Um, this one comes from, let's see here. Um, this one's from Jay McGrath. This is for UX. Is there an edge to entering a contest on FanDuel closer to lock like there is on DK? Um, Sure, right? Like at the end of the day, what that edge is about is that a lot of the biggest players, um, the sharpest players, they're busy. They're getting all their contest entries in um, early, and then Sunday morning, what they're doing is they're they're perfecting their lineups, right? They're like they're reacting to inactives. They're like polishing up their you know their their spread their Excel files of, of contest entries. They're uploading them. Um, it's Sunday morning is often when you see more casual players who don't play a lot. They're like hopping on and they're like, oh, it's Sunday morning, and I'm gonna go enter a DraftKings lineup and um, or a FanDuel lineup, right? And so you see more casual players show up Sunday morning. And so when there's a contest, when a big contest fills and the site posts a new one, it's not about entering Sunday morning, right? If you enter the Millie Maker Sunday morning, it's the same field as if you enter the Millie Maker on Saturday night. Um, it's when you find those contests that get posted Sunday morning. Those tend to have softer fields because that's where you get a higher percentage of them are, 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 are more casual players and a lower percentage of the entries in those contests are the some are like some of the industry's sharpest players. So it's not like a free money thing, but I think you generally are going to find softer fields. And I think that I think that plays out on every site. All right, next question. This one comes from uh, Gunslinger. There are too many good plays this week. How do you guys narrow it down enough? So I start my process with just finding the best plays from each game or each team, or if there are any from each game or each team. From there, I start thinking about theory and where the field is going to be going. How do I leverage that? How do I want to put myself in the best position to take down first place uh, where I'm competing against less of the field to do so? Again, that's not I don't do that before I find you know the best plays on paper because then you're introducing the suboptimal plays onto rosters. So I want to find the best plays first and then I'll narrow it down organically with how I see the best way to attack the slate from a from a theoretic standpoint. Yeah, if I can add so for like MME play if I, if I'm, and I don't always do 150 lineups, um, but if I do, what I generally look at is I try to get I try to limit my player pool of what I call floating plays. And a floating play is someone who can go in any roster, uh, regardless of uh, the stack around it, right? And so, like, a floating play for me this week is Justin Jefferson. I'm happy to have Justin Jefferson on any roster, um, whether it's a, a game, whether it's built around that game or not. And so I try to have like a limited number of floating plays. And in some cases, I'll actually like, I'll, I'll, I'll add a hard cap if I'm trying to, or if I'm having a hard time trimming down, I'll, I'll, I'll do a hard cap and say, look, I'll only have 10 or 12 floating wide receivers. And then outside of that, my, my wide receiver, eh, my wide receiver exposure will be uh, guys that are paired in game stacks. And so like, for example, this week for me, um, I have, uh, who's a wide receiver I'm using in only in stacks. Oh, AJ Brown, uh, AJ Brown. I, I will only use in, in, uh, what is it? A uh, Hawks Titans game stacks. I won't use him outside of that. And so like, 
I will sometimes just put a cap and say, like, I'll only have 10 wide receivers. And that sort of forces me to like stack rank, right? Like that forces me to say, I can't just be like, this is a good play. This is a good play. This is a good play. I have to be like, what's the number one good play? And what's the number two? And what's the number three? And I get down to like 10 and say, that's it. No more. Um, and then sometimes I have to tweak that because sometimes I'll end up with like my 10 good, my 10 good plays are like 10 of the most expensive guys. And it's like, well, crap, that doesn't fit. Um, I have to go like start trying to tweak and, and figure out some plays that are in, in broader price ranges. Um, but I find sometimes that the exercise of like stack ranking forces me to sort of sharpen my thinking and, and say not just what are good plays, but what are the best plays that I could, that I'm happy to be as sort of floating plays. And then the criteria I use there, I look at the projection, but I also look at ownership and then I look at leverage, right? Like in a, a guy who, if you have two guys who are both 5% owned and they both project identically and you think they have identical ceilings and identical chances of hitting those ceilings. The guy who's the better play is the guy who has who who provides leverage. So like Deontay Johnson uh, is a better play than imagine there's a Deontay Johnson clone out there who plays for the I don't know the Jaguars right who is exact who's projected exact the same as Deontay Johnson he's the exact same player um, <clears throat> but Deontay Johnson on the Steelers is a better play than our clone Deontay because he's leverage off of Harris. Uh, whereas our Jags, uh, Deontay, is not a not a leverage play off of anyone. And so what that leads me to do is I tend to not have a lot of like exposure to the onesie twosie guys on like random teams because they don't give me any sort of leverage over the field, right? Like if DJ Chark has a good game, cool. Um, but the odds of DJ Chark putting up a game you have to have in order to win a tournament are absolutely minuscule. And he's not providing leverage over anyone. And so like that sort of stack ranking process forces me to like really refine my thinking and get out of like that that thing I used to like the thing I used to do was I used to just like write down names that were interesting be like this guy this guy could have a big game this guy could have a big game this guy could have a big game uh, and then before you know it I've written down like two thirds of the receivers in the NFL uh, and my player pool is way too big and I just lose money so that was a lesson I learned a couple of years ago is like how to kind of try to smartly refine um, and, and try to really trim down by forcing myself to trim Thanks. That's uh, such an important concept that I think, you know, a lot of us at OWS are, are starting to really grasp right now because it's been, you know, taught by JM, taught by you, taught by Hilo. And it's really making a lot more sense now, especially for me. So, um, yeah, if you guys have more questions for X or Hilo or JM on those topics, I think it's really important to um, continue to discover what that is and the answer for you. And, uh, last question. Um, this one's going to be for UX. It's from Todd and the questions on optimizers. And he says, uh, when making the optimizer, uh, what rules do you make to make the optimizer get away from the chalk build? Okay, first, I just want to say I love uh, the evolution I've seen from Todd as a DFS player in the last like year um, where you've Todd, you can see, has really taken the lessons uh, that we teach, right, teach OWS to heart. And I remember when I met Todd a little over a year ago, it was all about like, let's talk about this play. Is this guy a good play? Is this guy a good play? And over time, Todd has kind of evolved in, in his thinking and has kind of taken it to the next level. And he's thinking not about plays, he's thinking about rosters and that's kind of the lesson we want to try and teach um so this is also a really lengthy question where i could probably talk for like at least half an hour um and i don't want to do that so i will tell you todd one is i'm going to do a reflection video this week and in that i'm going to uh record myself making that 150 rosters or at least some of them that i mentioned uh, i'm going to be entering this week so uh, you can see some of that in the reflection video. But I think that like when you're trying to make rules, um, what you're doing, like when you're trying to do rules to get away from the chalk, you can do like limits. Uh, and so like, 
one limit would be, and I'm trying to think, I don't know what I'm going to do yet, but I would say like, just in, like, off the top of my head, I would say you could do limits like at most two of Chris Carson, uh, Harris, Higby, Fant, and Cook, right? And so those are, we know that tight end is like the decision point of the slate. And we know that those are the two highest on running backs. Um, and we can say like, you know, we can do a rule like that would sort of force us to say like, we're not going to have three of those guys. Like if we're playing, if we're playing Harris and Art and Carson together on a roster, we're not going to use one of those, one of those chalk tight ends. And if we're using one of the chalk tight ends, then we will not play Harris and, um, and Carson together. You can do things like, um, on rosters that don't have Chris Carson uh, boost the projection of DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett by 10 or 15%. Um, So that when you don't have Carson, you're boosting guys that benefit if Carson fails. Um, And rosters that don't have Najee Harris boost, you know, Deontay Thompson, Deontay Johnson. Um, Another thing you can do is if you're trying to force like constructions, you can do things like, uh, if a roster has any of Christian McCaffrey, Dalvin Cook, Derek Henry, uh, Nick Chubb, um, who's the one I'm missing, uh, Alvin Kamara, then you must also use uh, one, another one of that exact same list. And so what that does is that forces that in rosters where you have an expensive running back, it's forcing that that double pay up strategy. Right. That we talked about. Uh, and similarly, you could do, you know, the same the same with a list of cheap running backs. So like if using one cheap running back must use two cheap running backs. And so that kind of gets you onto these constructions of like you're forcing the pairings that we talked about on the show of like, you know, you must have either either double pay up or double pay down to kind of get yourself away from that common central build. Um, and that also gets you away from what's going to be a really common construction of uh, rosters that have one of Carson or Harris and then one of either a pay up or a pay down back to pair with them. Like that's going to be the next most common pairing and roster construction outside of pairing Carson and Harris is, is having one of those two and then one cheap guy or one stud. Um, and so like forcing that double pairing of either double pay up or double pay down uh, is a way to kind of get away, help the optimizer navigate you away from that. You can also do uh, this isn't a rule, but in in some cases, I will just sort of bluntly apply uh, exposure caps to guys. So, like, I think I have an exposure cap right now. I've been I've been sort of fiddling around with building my rules. I haven't actually really completed my rosters yet, but I think I have an exposure cap of like ten or fifteen percent on both Carson and Harris right now. Um, and so you can do a, that's kind of a blunter instrument that doesn't necessarily help you get the constructions you want, um, but it does help. It helps you kind of avoid uh, getting too much exposure to guys that you that you don't want too much exposure to. Because, and I'll talk about this more in the reflection video. At the end of the day, the thing to understand is like it's really important to understand how an optimizer works under the hood and, and what it does. Right? It's 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 just an, it's an Excel solver. It's trying to spit out the lineups that project for the most points based on the series of constraints which you have which you have input through your exposure caps and through your rules. Um, it's then trying to, you know, to say like, okay, you, you've given me this set of rules to play with and and here's the here's the best lineup in that set of rules. And here's the here's the best 150 lineups that follow that set of rules. And so like what you're trying to do is you have to understand like how it operates. And so sometimes like if a guy projects really, really well, like like Najee Harris does, um, and like Chris Carson does, it's actually really hard to like fight with the optimizer and get it to not give you a ton of it. And so in some cases, I'll also do is I'll also just like take them out of the player pool. Like I'll 
I'll leave the player pool intact and I'll build 20 rosters or 30 rosters. And then I'll just kick those guys out of the player pool entirely. If I can't get them to like stop showing up or they're showing up way more than I want them to, like I'll build a few with them and then I'll just remove them from the player pool entirely and build from there. So uh, that's probably enough for now. Uh, but I will, I will keep talking. Um, I'll keep talking about this more in the reflection video that I do, where I like, where I record myself building some of the rosters that I'm going to be entering this week. I got nothing to add to that. That was incredible. <laughs> uh, do you ever James, do, do you, when, when you do all the time? Oh, I have a question for you. Like when you, when you do, like if you're doing like sort of this mini MME, like you talked about, like, do you, do you hand build those or you, do you use an optimizer? Like how, how do you actually make those rosters? I hand build and I use the optimizer to see, basically just see what is spit out with very bare rules. Um, mm -hmm. So just kind of give me an idea of how the field is going to see things through the optimizer, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. That's like the, fir the first thing I do on a week uh, when we get to like Friday and projections start to kind of settle is I, I load the optimizer. I, I change nothing and I run 150 and I look at the exposures and the yeah. constructions. And then I implement some very basic rules like must pair a quarterback with, you know, with one of his receivers and must bring yeah, someone exactly. back from the other team. And then I run 150 again and I start kind of like gradually implementing these like basic rules and just seeing what the exposures look like. And like that's, you know, that combined with ownership projections, just looking at the actual percentages is how I then get my sense of like, where is the field going this week? And it's a tremendously useful tool. It's also really, really useful on showdown where uh, ownership projections are a little more volatile. Yep. I love it, dude. All right, guys, I think that is going to do it for this week. Uh, X and I will be around in Discord to continue answering any questions as we lead to the slate. So keep popping those in there, uh, and we'll try and get to those as best we can. And we will see you all next week. A pleasure, as always, my friend. Uh, X is going to eat dinner. Um, but I will look forward to chatting with you all tonight yeah. as I put rosters together and tomorrow morning. Likewise, brother. I, I got to run and go show a house, actually. So <laughs> that's right. You're a real tour. What don't you do? Yeah. Hello's got like eight jobs. Oh, I just got to stay busy and I got to do stuff I enjoy. That's <laughs> it. That's it, man. Well, good luck, man. Make a sale. All right, guys. We'll see you next week.